1956, Elizabeth Elliot stood by a shortwave radio in the jungle of Ecuador and heard a message that she would never forget. Her husband, Jim, was missing. Her and Jim had been married only a little over two and a half years by that point. And five days after she heard this first message, she heard what she would fear the most, that her husband, Jim, had died. Jim's murder came at the hands of the tribe he was attempting to reach with the gospel. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's story is familiar to many Christians, and God has used Elizabeth's experience in suffering to help other Christians walk in trusting God through their suffering as well. Suffering, loss, and pain do not normally come with ready-made explanations. We discussed this last week as James opened his book, telling his readers to endure trials, trusting the all-wise, all-good, all-powerful God is using their trials in their lives for their good. To trust in that and endure. Now, we're familiar with the experience that James will go on to talk about next. That trials represent not only an opportunity to trust God, but sadly enough, Trials also represent an opportunity to blame God. Elizabeth Elliot echoed this truth over and over again in her life and teaching. There's one moment when this really came to life for her. She witnessed firsthand the image described in the Bible many times, a shepherd with his sheep. She visited a farm in northern Wales, staying with a shepherd named John Jones, Elliot watched as Jones brought his sheep to a bath, an antiseptic. And he had put the sheep in this bath or else the sheep would literally be eaten alive by insects and parasites. But as you might imagine, the sheep weren't too thrilled to go into this bath. They would struggle to climb out the side. She said one by one, John would seize the animals. They would struggle and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and force them back under. They tried to run up the ramp on the far end, but John would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding them, ears, eyes, nose, submerged. She says, I've had some experience in my life that have made me very sympathetic toward those poor sheep. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment the great shepherd was giving me and the great shepherd that I had trusted. And like these sheep, I did not get a hint of explanation. Well, the difference in wisdom between the great shepherd and us is infinitely bigger than the difference in wisdom between a human shepherd and normal sheep. Sometimes the most loving thing for a shepherd to do is grab a sheep, cast it down, seize it, tie it up, and not give a word of explanation. Now, if we won't acknowledge the character of this great shepherd, that he is infinitely wiser and infinitely more good than us, then we will ruin our lives with anxiety and frustration and anger. Or we will seek care from other shepherds that cannot fill the place of the great shepherd. So there will be times when we are bound up with no explanation and we will be tempted to blame God and be angry at him. James urges his readers not to do that. 
but instead to trust and love God, remember his character, and remember his gifts. We read of this as we continue in the book of James, from James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1011. It's 1011. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. We will be tempted to sin against God when faced with trials because we will be tempted to believe wrong things about God. So friends, how are we to overcome this? While James tells his readers to think clearly about who God is. Not just that, to think clearly about who we are and to think clearly about temptation itself. And all these things will result in loving God the most and trusting him. So we're going to distill this passage into one main point. I think it could go something like this. God's grace to us allows us to trust him unconditionally when we don't understand what's happening and when we are tempted to sin. God's grace to us allows us to trust him unconditionally when we don't understand what's happening and are tempted to sin. We're going to break down this passage into two big sections which relate to the two small paragraphs of this passage. I think we can sum up the first section of the first paragraph just with one negative command, and that's don't blame God. I'm going to unpack that. I'm going to give reasons for that. And then the second paragraph, the second section, we can distill into one simple positive command. Trust God. And James will give reasons for that as well. And before we dive in very briefly, just to recap some basic knowledge of the letter of James, is to remind you first that it is in fact a letter written by someone and addressed to someone else. And that it's a letter tells us that, you know, we should look for things that concern the situation of the recipients what's going on in their lives, the difficulties, their circumstances. And if it's a letter, we expect someone to have written it. The author is James. He says so in the very first word. Now, for several reasons, Christians over 2,000 years have deduced that this James is the James half-brother of Jesus. You find Jesus' teaching throughout this letter. And if this is indeed James, the half-brother of Jesus, and given that James doesn't really mention the conflict brought about in Acts 15 of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was martyred in the year 62, most conclude that this is among the earliest letters of the New Testament, likely written in the early 40s. It's not the 1940s, but that's like the 0040s. (laughs) The letter itself is known for its practical nature. It's written out of a pastoral concern for Christians who are Jewish that they would grow in their wholehearted devotion to the Lord. 
every area of their lives, that there would be less of a gap between their faith and how they're living, between what they say they believe and how they actually live, less of a gap between those things. So like we saw last week, James opened his letter by encouraging them to respond to their trials in the right way. These were people who were being persecuted for their faith, forced to spread and leave where they lived. He tells them to count them as joy, count their trials as joy, not because the trials are good in themselves, but because God can use their trials to make them stronger and to bring them closer to him. Well, the next section of the letter, which is in front of us today, really flows out of the opening of James. And James pivots from trials to temptation. Like we already said at the beginning, when we face trials, we're often tempted to do wrong. And the main wrong James is concerned about that we might do when faced with trials is believe wrong things about God. So in the simplest form, what James says to his readers here is don't blame God, trust God. Now, we should say a lot more than that because that deserves explanation. And if we just left it at don't blame God, trust God, it would be too short of a sermon. Not the kind that I like. First paragraph really boils down to one, that one command. Don't blame God. We're going to try to understand what James is saying just by asking several different basic questions about this. Okay, first question. What is it that we should not blame God for? What is it that we should not blame God for? This is something important to clarify or else we might get confused. Is James saying that God has nothing to do with the trials in our lives? Is that what James is saying? Well, the Bible seems to indicate otherwise if that is what he's saying. God's presented in the Bible as being in control of every event, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside the control of God. In Exodus, moreover, we saw that he has direct involvement with Israel's trials in the wilderness, ordaining that they would lack food and water. Earlier, we read from the book of Job. And in Job, God allowed Satan to bring calamity on Job's life. We think of Jesus himself. Before Jesus' ministry really got started, each of the gospel books state how the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So when James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, he can't be saying that God has nothing to do with our circumstances. He can't be saying that. He has to be saying something else. And it helps to know what that word temptation means. It means to be enticed to improper behavior. In other words, it means to try to get someone to sin. So it's not that God has nothing to do with our circumstances. It's that God has nothing to do with trying to get us to sin. Trying to get us to sin in response to our circumstances. So compare this with how Satan operates. How Satan's purpose is in testing. Whether it's the Garden of Eden or Job or Jesus. Satan acts with the desire to see people fall, to see people sin, and to bring them down. So with the Garden of Eden, he wanted Adam and Eve to lose paradise. For Job, Satan wanted Job to curse God. And for Jesus, Satan tempted Jesus so that Jesus would forsake his mission to save his people. On the contrary, God by ordaining trials in our lives, is never trying to get us to sin. 
He's trying to build us. So that means we should never blame him when we feel a desire to sin. We can ask another question to try to explain what James is saying. You know, don't blame God. Well, if we are not blaming God, why shouldn't we blame God if we feel a desire to sin? Why not? Well, James gives two reasons in verse 13. They start right after that word for. Another way of saying because. Two reasons why we shouldn't blame God. God, first, cannot be tempted by evil. And, he says, he himself tempts no one. James's logic goes something like this. Why would God try to get you to sin if he doesn't want to sin himself? Why would God try to make sin attractive to you if sin is not attractive to God? 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So another question then. If we're not going to blame God, we have good reasons to. If God is not to blame for our desire to sin, then who is? Who is to blame? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when, notice, not if, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Friends, make no mistake. We are going to go through bad things. Satan will attack and tempt us. We'll have trials that shape us. We'll, we will have people who hurt us. James doesn't dismiss the reality of these things. But James doesn't lay the blame for our desire to sin at the feet of God, at the feet of Satan, at the feet of our trials, at the feet of other people. He lays the blame for our desire to sin at our feet. He says his own desire. We need to take ownership that the enemy we should be concerned about first is ourselves. There are still parts of us that find sin attractive. So not taking ownership of this would be like copying your friend on your chemistry test, copying all the answers down, writing your name on the paper, turning it in, and then when you fail, going back to the teacher and saying, it's my friend's fault, he got all the answers wrong. You wrote your name on that paper. Only you, you, you decided to copy him. That was your decision, not his. So this is James's case. James's case for them not to blame God for their desire to sin, really to blame themselves. I was just going to try to bring this home and ask a couple more questions that are a little more practical in nature. So first is, what does it look like to blame God for our desire to sin in response to trials. What does that look like in real life? I try to think about this myself. That I've spent, I've spent plenty of hours asking God for something that I read in the Bible was a good thing. That I read in the Bible was an excellent thing and that God chose not to give to me. And it's in my weaker moments when I would grow frustrated and cold and angry and in my weakest moments, I would tell God, God, you can fix my frustration just by giving me what I want. And you see what I was really saying? I was saying, God, me being frustrated is actually your fault. That's blaming God. Every trial comes with a temptation to blame God. If we're struggling to uh, make ends meet financially, 
we can be tempted to think that God isn't at work in our lives. If a loved one dies, we're tempted to think that God doesn't love us. If the poor are righteous, suffer, and the guilty go scot-free, we're tempted to think that God is not fair, God is not just, or God just isn't real at all. In all these situations, and there are infinitely more of them, we are tempted to tell God, if you did not orchestrate things the way that you did, then I would not behave in the way that I am. We are tempted to tell God, I would not behave this way, I would not sin if you did not make me this way. So when we choose to sin, we're communicating that God isn't worth following in that particular situation, that he hasn't given us enough, that he hasn't shown us enough, that he hasn't loved us enough, that he hasn't helped us enough. That's what it looks like to blame God. But on the flip side of that, so real life, what does it look like to take ownership that the desire to sin comes from us? What does it look like to own that? It's to realize that we don't want to sin because God wants us to sin. We want to sin because we like sin. It's to realize that sin often looks like a more attractive option than loving and trusting the Lord. That's why James uses the words lured and enticed. These words come from a fishing or hunting context. You know, he would have grown up with Jesus near the Sea of Galilee. You know, fish find bait to be attractive. They think it looks good. That's why it's bait. And so they bite down on it. And as soon as they bite down on it, they're dragged away. So to mix the metaphor a little bit, when sin can look like a peaceful stream where we find relief, where we find refreshment, and when we enter that stream and stay in it, it begins to carry us along. It was gently at first, but then it builds, and it builds to rush, and it builds into a rapid, and it eventually it leads to a cliff where there's a waterfall. This is the process of sin that James describes in these verses. And it tells us that acting on our desire to sin doesn't get it out of our system. It carries us further down the stream. So just as a caveat here, those who believe in Jesus have been saved from the ultimate fate of sin. But, but, we can still choose to swim in the stream of sin and expose ourselves to its dangers. So, take ownership of that the desire to sin comes from us. To do that means to realize our capacity to want sin and to realize where sin leads. This this section has been full of questions, but just a couple more. Quick fire, rapid fire round. More application questions. What shapes your thoughts about God? What shapes your thoughts about God? If we are not in God's word, if we are not praying, if we are not among his people, then other influences will fill that place and then shape our thoughts about God. That means our circumstances will shape our thoughts about God. Our emotions will shape our thoughts about God. The world and our desires will shape our thoughts about God instead of those good things. And James will go on in verse 16 to say that there are many things that seek to deceive us of how we believe in God. And it's stunning 
Friends, it's stunning that even in our failure to be shaped to think about God in the right way, doing things that would shape us to think rightly about God, even when we don't do that and fail to do that, we can find a way to blame God for us not doing that. It is stunning to think. Underneath all of our excuses for not doing things such as reading the Bible, coming to church, praying, underneath all those excuses is a shift in blame. A shift in blame from ourselves and I think ultimately to the Lord. So that common excuse, I'm too busy, really peel back the layers and I think you'll find us saying, if God hadn't given me so much to do, then maybe I would find time to seek him. Underneath that excuse, you know, it's just too hard. Reading the Bible is too hard. Praying is too hard. I really just can't focus. Peel back the layers. Underneath that excuse, you know, if God just made it easier, then I would do it. Shift the blame. Another question, application in nature and just in light of this. What are the difficulties in your life that tempt you to sin? What are the difficulties in your life that tempt you to sin? Friend, I would encourage you to do what you can to avoid those situations. But last question, the rapid fire round. How are your desires? How are your desires? How are, what do you want? What are you passionate about? I ask this because we can't avoid all difficulties. We can't avoid all temptation. Friends, it's not wrong to feel temptation, but it is wrong to seek it. It is wrong to let it linger, and it is wrong to act on it. We won't act on temptation when our desires are right. So this side of heaven, there will always be parts of our hearts that desire sin. But what James tells us here is that each one of us, not just a subset of people, have a desire that are broken and aimed at the wrong thing. But the desire to sin becomes weaker and weaker the more we desire the Lord, the more we desire God. So we remember Jesus' teaching that out of the heart springs evil desires. So then we remember Jesus' call. Deny yourself and follow me. The times when we are most tempted to forget how bad we are and to forget how good God is, to forget to deny ourselves and follow God, the times we forget that is trials, especially so let's go to the flip side of this. It leads well into the next section of this passage. When circumstances arise that tempt us to sin, we should not blame God. Instead, we should trust God. It's really the second section here. So this is another simple command. Trust God. I've heard it all the time. But like a lot of things in life, just because it's simple doesn't mean it is easy. Like hitting a golf ball. It looks like the simplest process ever. But there are about a thousand and one different things that can go wrong in a golf swing that can make you slice it or shank it. <laughs> so we want to take a moment, just right at the outset, when we say, trust God. Let's take a moment to acknowledge that this is hard to do. That not blaming God and instead trusting him is not an easy thing. James opens the paragraph by saying, in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. From how difficult our lives can be to how corruptible and gullible our hearts are, to how deceptive the world and Satan are, 
There are many things at work that makes it easy and natural for us to blame God and not trust him. So he says, do not be deceived. This past week I was watching an episode of uh, Jerry Seinfeld's talk show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. In case you're wondering, they do exactly what the title suggests in each episode. Uh, the show is very innocuous. Uh, it's just you really do not need a high brain function to watch it. Uh, but it is interesting to see famous people kind of out and about among us normal folk. Um, his guest on this particular episode I watched this week was Ricky Gervais. He's the British comedian who is also a well-known atheist. Somehow Jerry and Ricky got on the topic of prayer. And Mr. Gervais said how foolish it was for people to think that God would show up to help them find their car keys when God had not shown up to stop something like the Holocaust. Something that was meant to be very lighthearted, kind of jokey, but really was impactful. It's a striking moment. And it was more than that Mr. Gervais didn't believe in God. He's angry at God. So I thought, when I have an answer to that, Here's a prime example of it just being easy and natural to blame God instead of trust him. Now, trying to do that when thinking of something like the Holocaust or a mass shooting deserves more time than we have this morning. But one of the first people I thought of in response to Mr. Gervais' criticism was Corey ten Boom. Corey ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who was put in a Nazi concentration camp because her family protected Jewish people. Corey trusted God while at Ravensbrück concentration camp and even witnessed God work in that dark place. The guards at Ravensbrück would not enter Corey's barracks because it was infested with fleas. This allowed her and the other prisoners in those barracks to study the Bible and pray together. Talking about that line from Psalm 23 coming to life. You prepare before me a table in the presence of my enemies. Fleas stopped Nazis. So the kind of trust that God wants us to have in him does not come easy, does not come natural. The kind of trust God wants us to have in him is a kind that's unconditional. It's unconditional. That no matter what happens, even if we don't understand it, even when it's hard, we trust him and we love him. Friends, this is not an easy thing to do. So why should we do it? Well, verse 17, James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James lays out reasons, not only for why we shouldn't blame God when we feel tempted to sin, he lays out reasons why we should trust God when we feel tempted to sin and in response to our trials. So here in verse 17, just break down what's happening here. James notes the source of goodness, that all good comes from God because God is the essence of goodness. James knows not just that God is the source of all good, but that he dispenses good. God's good gifts are not just good, they are perfectly good. It's the same word he used back in verse 4, complete God's gifts are complete. They achieve their objective. And James notes more of who this source of all good is. He says he is the father of lights, the creator. He's the one who made the sun, the moon, the stars. 
But even in how what he's made reveals God's greatness, what he's made cannot reveal his greatness fully. What he made constantly moves. There's night and day. There are phases. There are seasons. But there is no change with God. So why should we have a kind of trust in God that withstands the kind of trials? The kind of trials that prevent us from understanding what he's doing. Why should we have a kind of trust in God that's unconditional? Well, James says, because God is good. He gives good. And he is always unchangingly good. Models of this kind of unconditional trust are replete in Scripture. Trust that the good creator God is always good. There's Joseph. Most of us know Joseph's story. Sold into slavery, falsely accused and thrown into prison. Things that should not have made sense to Joseph. Yet Joseph could look at all that happened and say to the people who wronged him, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph did not respond to his situation by blaming God. Joseph responded to his situation by trusting God. There's Job. Literally the entire book of Job is about how he can't understand why the things he's going through are happening. The whole book is him wrestling with whether or not to blame God for his trials or whether or not to hang on to God and God's good character. Now Job has strong and weak moments with this. But I think his strongest moment comes after what we read earlier, after his initial declaration of trust in chapter 1. It's from Job 13, 15, where he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Unconditional trust. Models of that all over the Bible. There's Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is often referred to as the basement of the Psalter. You know, most Psalms you know, find a way to wrap up well to note how the situation's changed, to end on some kind of bright spot. But not Psalm 88. This, sometimes it's just how life is. It's very, very hard to find any sort of silver lining. But although the author of that psalm finds himself in that kind of situation, where does he remain faced? He remains faced toward the Lord, not turned his back on him. He doesn't see, he doesn't understand. But he cries out to the Lord, who he calls the God of his salvation. Models of unconditional trust. Friends, the greatest one, Jesus Christ. Faced before Jesus was a darkness never experienced by anyone else. The full wrath of God for sinners. In Jesus' anguish, his sweating of blood, he expresses an unconditional trust in God the Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. So God asks us to trust in him even when we can't see all that he's doing, even in the face of darkness. And so here is Jesus reminding us that he isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Corey Ten Boom says this, the darkness we can face is very deep, but our God has gone deeper still. When you have been to Calvary, even Ravensbrück concentra concentration camp looks small. So friend, what are you facing that makes it hard to trust God and very easy and natural to blame him? 
Maybe it's something big, but it doesn't have to be. Can you trust in God's goodness even when you can't see it? We don't want to pretend that that's not a hard thing to do, because it is. But if there is a condition to your love and trust for God, if you say, I'll continue to trust God only if, whatever comes after that if, functions as your real God. You're saying that that thing is more important for you to have than to have God himself. Unconditional trust. That's what God's calling us to. He's not calling us to blind trust. Like we've, like we've said, he's proven his goodness. His goodness will not change. We have good reasons to have this kind of trust in God. But we still ask, how do we do this? How do we have this kind of trust? Well, verse 18, the last one of this section. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Quickly, let's try to see what James is doing here, what, what James is saying. Again, we're working towards figuring out how we can have this kind of unconditional trust. How? That phrase, brought us forth, lies at the center of verse 18. Literally means that God gave birth to us. So the Old Testament, God promised to give his people new hearts, to replace their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. Hearts that desire and are able to trust God unconditionally. Other places in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says that anyone who believes in Jesus is a new creation. In John 3, Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus that he must be born again, literally born from above. This is not human birth. This is another one. With a new birth comes a new life and a new relationship to the one who gave us birth. And here, that's God himself. God is the one who did this. It says, he brought us forth. And the basis for him doing that is his own choice. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth. In other words, he didn't conclude that, man, look at Bill Barbie, how good he is. I'm going to give birth to him. I'm going to give him new life. No. His own decision. Do not conclude that we earned this. He gave it. Just as we contributed nothing to our human birth, you did not consult with your parents. I think I will be born at this time. (laughs) Neither did you contribute anything to your spiritual birth. Here is a prime example of God's gracious, good, perfect gift, our salvation. Completely a gift. The Bible affirms that we genuinely chose God, but the mystery is that we only chose him because he chose us. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So how does God bring us forth? He says, by the word of truth. His spirit moves in our hearts to trust in Christ when we hear the gospel. This is called regeneration. So we read earlier from 1 Peter 2. It says, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And later in verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. You put all this together. How do we trust God unconditionally? How can we trust him even when trials make blaming him the easiest and most natural thing to do? 
because he's the one who has chosen to empower us to believe and trust in him in the first place. If he has chosen to do this and has done this, then he will keep doing this because his purposes do not change. This gives us assurance. There is no shadow due to change. His will does not change. The power to trust him comes from him, not from us. It's a gift from God that we trust in Christ in the first place, and it's a gift from God that we continue to trust in Christ after we've trusted him the first time. So when you have no idea how you will trust God and what you are facing, remember his unchanging goodness, remember his unchanging promises and purposes and will, and pray. God, I feel powerless to trust in you. Help me. Keep your promise to me. As crazy as it sounds, we pray, God, I need to lean on you just to have the power to keep leaning on you. It's a good prayer. Of course, we're speaking as those who fight to continue to trust in our Lord after we've trusted him already for the first time. And remember that Christians are those who have trusted in Jesus alone to pay the punishment for their sins, who trust in his good, li- in his good life to go in their place, to have a righteous standing before God the Father, and who trust Jesus enough to follow him as Lord. Now, if that does not describe you this morning, then you might be tempted to worry or give the excuse that you don't trust in God yet because he has not chosen you. Well, friends, that would be blaming God, the exact thing we're warning against. What we say is, believe, trust in Jesus today, and that will show that God has chosen you. There's one more thing to note about this passage. We have reasons to trust in God, power to trust in God, this kind of unconditional trust. But it closes with hope as we have this kind of trust in God, hope. See how James closes verse 18. It says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, first fruits symbolize a lot of things. In the Old Testament, it's what God called his people to give him, their first and their best. But most basically, though, first fruits show us simply that there are more fruits to come. God has saved us. God has made us new. If we are the first fruits of that, then that means he's making all things new as well. That means there's more to come. That means one day he will bring justice and every wrong will be made right. And it will be no longer difficult to trust him because our faith will be sight. That Jesus died and rose again and that God saved you is evidence that he will do this and finish this work. But until then, when trials tempt us to sin and blame God, remember that there is no darkness in God, but there is darkness that remains in us. And instead of blaming God, we trust him, even when the easiest and most natural thing to do would be to blame him, because we know that he is the source of all good, that he is unchangingly good and infinitely wise, and that he has been good to us in the past. And he has given us new life in Christ, and is there to keep us trusting in Christ. So friends, trust the Lord, even when it's hard, even when we can't see, 
because one day we will see. And one day we will not have sin. And one day our faith will be sight. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace that has saved us, that has given us power to trust in you and your grace in the promise to make all things new. Lord, we say this morning, we need your help. You've done so good to us. But unlike you, we are changing. There is variation. So God, we need help trusting in you who does not change. Because God, there are so many things we do not see, we do not know, we do not understand. We need help to trust in you. So God, would you help us? And would you remind us of the promise we have, the sure standing we have in Jesus? God, do this for us, we pray in his name. Amen.